Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food, and this week we're pairing it with wine. With Cindy Marie Harvey, whose beautiful book, Watercress, Willow and Wine, is all about English varieties. And she has some top tips for Christmas. You know, you're having your sparkling for breakfast anyway in your gym jams with your smoked salmon and that goes so well with sparklings. And then if you're having something sort of seafoody to begin with, you could put it with either a nice crisp Bacchus or maybe an Albarino, something like that. Cindy Marie takes us into a revolution in English wine as we tour some of the southeast's most exciting vineyards. But as she points out, grapes on English soil have been here since the Romans. What did the Romans ever do for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is that, you know, we're really going through a renaissance. And the bit that really impresses me, I think, is that for those of us who live and breathe the wine trade, it's kind of an accepted thing. But what we forget is there's the rest of the UK. that The majority of them either don't know we make good wine in the UK or some of them who know a little bit think we only make sparkling, that we don't make still. And there's just so many people who are out there who'd like to know more about it and don't know what's on their doorstep. And that is what your book does. It is very, very clear about how to pair with food, for example, and we'll go into that in a minute. But you you just go through the basics so that we don't need to know too much about wine. You know, I've been on trips across California to the Sonoma Valley and Napa Valley, and I've been through Bordeaux on press trips. (laughs) It's been amazing. And there's so much information about wine that I feel a little bit overwhelmed. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I just don't get it. You kind of cut through all that a little bit like a sparkling with the fat of fish and chips. Ooh, I'm liking that. To just get to what we really need to know. Is that what you intended? To yeah, do? absolutely. I mean, one of my big things that I really hate in this world, um, and I know that everyone could be to a little bit more or less guilty of this, me included, is wine snobbery. Um, you know, drinking good wine and eating good food for me is just one of life's essentials. So anybody who does anything that takes that away by intimidating somebody else and playing that one-upmanship game, I think should just be basically slapped around in the face with a wet haddock. You know, they really shouldn't be allowed to do it. It's just not fair. The great thing about wine is that whatever you like is good. You know, no one else can tell you any different. And we all have different taste buds. We all drink at different levels of price point. For different people, it's different things. Some people, a a glass of fizz represents a real big celebration. For other people, it's the thing on a Friday night to signify beginning of the weekend, chill out. They don't even need to know that much about it. They know that they enjoy it. So that was a bit of the sort of the destigmatization, if you like, of wine. You know, it should be fun. That's the basic bottom line. Let's also put it into perspective. People all over the world will have a little glass of something lovely from the land around them with every single meal. It is good for you. It's very much part of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, It's been drunk by peasants and noble people. Going back to the Romans, the great amphoras of wonderful wines from the land. It is about as local and seasonal as to to your typical Neapolitan as, as pizza, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you look very often at the classic wine and food pairings. And whilst I like changing, sort of like ringing the changes a bit, um, you look at things like, for example, 
where Sancerre grows. You know, you've got these wonderful wines. They were nice and crisp and they go really well with, guess what, the local goat's cheese. You know, things that are on your doorstep normally would be arranged that they go well with it. So if you want to be in Piemonte, for example, especially at the moment, if you can afford it, um, white truffle season. You know, white truffles just, are the Just best. come back from Turin, actually. Yeah. I am so jealous. You have no idea. <laughs> to be fair, I am going there in a week's time. But yeah, the, the best thing for me in the world is putting a glass of Nebbiolo and it doesn't have to be, you know, the top single crew Barola or whatever, even just a Nebbiola de la Lange with white truffles. It's just sublime. So Which things is that exactly grow together. What I had this time last week. Oh, where did you yes. go? Fontana Freda. Oh yeah. In the <laughs> King's Hunting Lodge. Barola and truffles, absolutely amazing. What do you think about Fontana Freda? Oh Fontana Freda's lovely because there's so much history there. You know, the Bella Rosine who was, you know, the king's lovely mistress on the side, so he gave her a rather nice estate to have and play around and with. And a tunnel to get to her under the castle well one must try and you know protect the, the niceties in this life um but yeah fontana freda's had a very sort of um different uh history over the years i think then of course it got lost in a um paid off as a gambling debt i think at one point by her son and now more than ever with climate change and the cost of living crisis that drinking and eating from the land understanding what's right under our noses is so important isn't it yeah, absolutely. And I think people are open to finding out more about it. They want to know more about it. But this whole sort of globalisation that we've suddenly backed ourselves into means that we tend to ignore what we have just down the road. I mean, I had the most amazing thing the other day of, I think we all very defensively about, you know, whatever we have is the best. So, you know, if you're in Scotland, we've got the best um, steak. If you're in Argentina, it's the best steak there, etc. And I went to do a press launch actually in London for the Foreign Press Association. So I had a load of Italian journalists turn up and I said, well, we're going to be doing British charcuterie. I think you could probably have heard the laughter from there to Edinburgh. And then at the end of it, when they'd all tasted this amazing chestnut smoked copper that's made here in the UK by Tempest Foods, they all went, where do we buy this? And to actually have those Italians give their kind of like blessed approval of something which they considered was theirs and nobody else could make outside of Italy. That is something I find is really amazing. So it's just teaching people, like you say, what they have around us and on our own doorstep. And we do have it on our own doorsteps. You've got a lovely map, beautiful illustrations in your book, by the way. Um, I know that you found your illustrations. Do you want to give her a little bit of a name check? Absolutely. Chloe Robertson, who is divine and I love her to pieces. And uh, I found her simply because I was just Googling as as one does. And I really liked her style. And I thought that's really what I like. And then I sort of looked at where she's actually based and she's three miles down the road from me. Meant to be. So she's also South Downs. And so it was very much about keeping the book focused on the UK mm. you know it's like it was printed in the UK we didn't send it elsewhere so you know it was keeping about a very much a local focus on oh. everything from illustrations across the board and that map really gives us a sense that certainly southern England is really full of the most incredible vineyards now I know that this is largely due to climate change so there's you know there's two sides of the coin here and we will go into that but just give us a name check just go round that map just to tell us some of the top vineyards that we might recognize from the supermarket shelves yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at sort of you starting, I think it's the range along the south coast. So if you go down right to the Isles of Scilly, you've got a vineyard on the Isles of Scilly, St. Martin's down there. They make amazing, lovely 
great refreshing wines and actually interestingly they the people who run it um james and holly they're vegans and so when we came to doing the pairing they said would you mind having a vegan recipe i'm like absolutely not so then we started talking to the chef who works at their local pub who was doing supper clubs for them with vegan recipes turns out her parents own a vineyard in new zealand so it's all very connectively but if you go through coming up through obviously you've got camel valley that so many people have heard about raymond blanc's a big fan cornwall exactly coming through dorset you've got langham um who won best sparkling wine in the world a couple of years ago um then coming through into hampshire well there's just so many around me i'm so lucky to live in hampshire um you know Coates and Celia is one that perhaps not an awful lot of people know, but the ones in the trade and the restaurant trade know it. Um, you know, it's listed at the Georges Sank in Paris, which I think means they're doing something okay. <laughs> Um, you know, then we've got sort of smaller vineyards like, um, Danebury. Danebury, a real boutique little one. And they make the most beautiful Madeleine Angevin, a white variety made for the summer. And then you go through, you know, you go through Sussex with the bigger names. You've got, um, Ridgeview. Obviously, you've got Nightimber. And then going over into Kent, obviously, with Chapel Down, um, and Simpsons over there. So there's a whole host of them. But what I wanted to do was just go, yeah, there are the big guys, but there's also quite a lot of really interesting things. Going back to your Romans, there's people making backers. Aged in amphora mm. on the Jurassic Coast. Mm. I mean, it's slightly surreal, mm. but it works and it's amazing. Yeah, and Bacchus is the one variety that you really rate, don't you? I really like it. I think that we mustn't become a one horse pony um, and sort of say this is it. But the trouble is, when you are talking to the, in the entire world and all the wines come from everywhere, whether it be Mexico or whatever, you need occasionally to start off your launch, you need a, a flagship mm-hmm. variety. And I think that will do it for England, for Bacchus for the moment. But that having said, you know, the Chardonnay that we're producing here is spectacular, especially some down in Kent at Kitscote, which is wonderful. Um, and then you've got all the other different varieties everyone's starting to play around with. You know, we've got Albarino grown here, for heaven's sake. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it is, it's amazing. And it's just going to get better and better and grow and grow. Well, yes, so you say, but it is climate change that is providing the environment for it. So let's talk about that. So on the one hand, we are suffering from global warming, but it means that it is a better environment for the vines in 2018 produced that incredible summer of 2018 uh, that just went on and on and on I mean the vineyards are still talking about that aren't they yeah definitely I mean they I think it was everyone was holding their breath because it was just so perfect everyone was just waiting for the one thing that went wrong and it never happened it was absolutely phenomenal um you know we are still a marginal climate so there will be a lot of vintage variation in the UK um I think the difference that we've had is how we're actually adapting to it so whilst it's always been sparkling which was fine because obviously for sparkling being a marginal climate doesn't matter because you're bringing your grapes in with higher acidity what will slightly be more complicated shall we say is producing still wines year in year out without huge vintage variation Um, but climate change will assist that and it will help yeah and it comes at a very good time there's a lot of uh consciousness about uh sustainability about doing the right thing by the climate carbon capture there's new information coming in all the time um i mean i'm going over to bolney tomorrow for a lovely lunch um at their fantastic restaurant looking out over the vineyards there oh i was there last week (laughs) sure you were um and you know there's no waste there they use their grape skins to create Mm -hmm. gins and 
byproducts. There's very little intervention, the kind of the fertilisers, the pesticides that farmers would just always use, you know, 20 years ago. People are coming to their wine growing with a very different sensibility, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I think WineGB have been absolutely brilliant at establishing the sustainability. So there is a separate section now which you can sign up to as a winery. There's a whole host of sustainable criteria that you have to look at before you can actually qualify. And it does mean that you as a consumer can look out there and go, actually, that's great because I I might like the taste of your wine, but if I know that actually it's doing something negatively damaging to the environment Mm. that's not so great so people are aware about this when they're buying things because we do have a choice and putting that information out to them and it's a bit like you're saying going back to the beginning for most people the the level of technical knowledge of what happens in a winery is either over their head or they're simply not interested and why should they be as long as what's in the glass is what they want to drink Mm. you know let's not make it too complicated but by putting that stamp saying this is a sustainable winery and it comes from everything if you look at for example in a winery at harvest time the amount of water that you need just to keep everything clean um, it is a phenomenal amount for example sort of say you did one liter of wine you probably need 10 liters of water Mm. that kind of balance so a lot of things are looking also at their wastage of water and how they can actually recycle that and reuse it you've mentioned obviously the pips and the skins you know whether it goes into producing a distillate or whether it goes off into a beauty product Mm. you know it doesn't matter as long as it gets reused so yeah i think there is a great great interest from consumers and thankfully it's coming from the wineries as well as they're ahead of the game really Yeah, absolutely. And Will Davenport, who's about 10 minutes up the road from where I am in in East Sussex, Mm. you know, won one of the biggest sustainable wine awards for his wine. And that is a fantastic achievement for an organic wine. But it's not just that it's organic. He told me that he uses and has always used the local community to pick. Yeah, I asked him, uh, you know, I was when I was doing something on him for the Delicious podcast, how Brexit was going to affect him because it was just before Brexit at that time. And he said, well, actually, we've always used the local pickers. And, you know, people, grandparents and their grandchildren come and they help pick and they always have done. So, you know, it's not just about carbon capture. It's not just about the not using pesticides and being totally organic. It is also about that kind of sense of community, which, again, goes right back to the Romans. And, you know, that's exactly how the the southern Mediterraneans pick their vines, isn't it? Yeah, I think we have when we say sustainable, I think somehow it's become slightly more narrowed down to just purely about um the the planet for want of a better word um but the social interaction is just as important i mean i think for me it comes back to sort of slow food again about something yeah exactly it's about that good clean fair thing and the fair bit is the bit that i think for a lot of people they don't take that much notice of and you know what is the point of eating absolutely delicious um rocket produced in mexico if the people they're employing are not being paid a fair living wage and they don't get any exactly. health care, you know, I would not be yeah. happy eating that. And I don't think most people would. Yeah, exactly. And so that is, I mean, you're very involved with Slow Food. You were the translator for Carlo Petrini live. How was that? Oh, God, that was petrifying. Genuinely. <laughs> it was just, I mean, one of the, you know, one of my best bits of my life, I have to say, you know, it really was some, quite something. But I said to him beforehand, I said, you know, okay, Carlo, just give me an idea of, of what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> and um, 
And he said, uh, oh, yeah, fine. So he gave me an A4, A4 sheet of paper with three words on it. And that was it. <laughs> I was like, OK, that's, that's OK. That's fine. So then I spoke to the MC and he said, look, don't worry, because we've got the then Prince Charles, now King Charles, the then Prince Charles on after him. So I've told him he only has, he said, well, I've actually told him he's got 10 minutes. He's got 15. So you'll be fine. So I stand up there in front of the great and the good. And I'm absolutely trembling because all of my food heroes are there in, in the audience. And I think it was about an hour and a bit later we stopped. And he just, obviously, he's such a passionate guy, but he just talked and everybody wanted to listen. So it was just, it was phenomenal. But yes, I, <laughs> I think I had to be sort of caught as I fell off the podium afterwards because I was trembling so much. <laughs> <laughs> and King Charles uh, is also a very big um, supporter of English wines, isn't yes, he? Yes, indeed. Um, I remember going around to, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was going around to the composer John Taverner's house um, for a play date. My kids were at school with his kids. Who knew? I certainly didn't. Um, I, went, <laughs> I was playing downstairs with them and the mum. And suddenly this amazing music was coming from upstairs. And I said to the mum, what's that music? She said, oh, that's John doing something upstairs. And anyway, As he does, yes. John Taverner <laughs> kind of wafted down this, the, the, this the fantastic staircase and said, I've just been to Ridgeview with Prince Charles. Anybody fancy <laughs> cracking open a couple of bottles? We spent the oh, afternoon drinking this amazing Ridgeview, which <laughs> was then later, as you say in the book, presented uh, at several of the Queen's major functions. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think what the the Roberts family they really were so fundamentally in taking English sparkling wine to a greater audience and definitely abroad as well. So not only in the sense of the physicality of being abroad, but all of the top diplomats and all of the top Mm. politicians were coming here and they're tasting English sparkling wine. You know, absolute credit to the the royal household for doing that. Um, You know, I know that they've got their own um, wine, which they um, have made for them on Windsor. But actually, if you think of some sort of huge, huge event and then discovering that the wine you're actually drinking comes from England as well, that's quite something. Exactly. Let's start going through your food moments um, because each of the vineyards that you choose to talk about, you add some recipes to go particularly with their wines. Uh, Before we start going through those food moments, give us some of the top tips. I picked up on the sparkling wine with the fish and chips. Start with that. Why would that go so well? Well, it's just... Although I said, you know, it's great fun to experiment, there are actually some scientific reasons to why different foods go with different wines. You know, there's actually the physical components within them um, that actually will either make them taste better or worse. And when you're tasting sparkling wine with anything that is fried, literally the acidity will cut through sort of that real sort of cloyingness of the fryness and it will brighten the food as well. So there is no better pairing for sparkling wine in my mind than really freshly just fried um, fish and chips preferably sat on a beach um, sort of of an evening in, in July in Lyme Regis but um, you know it really is one of the world's greatest things and most people go why would you put sparkling with you know because sadly there's still this conception that sparkling wines are only to be drunk on high days and holidays um, but I am a great believer that over the next two years we're going to see a lot of change in that and people actually understanding that sparkling wines can go through an entire meal yeah. Um, and therefore, this is something not just to be drunk as an aperitif, then put aside and go to the still stuff, but you can actually drink it throughout. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned a Gewurztraminer um, with spice. Uh, I was told that a long, long time ago. I've kind of always tried to stick to it, a Riesling or a Gewurztraminer. Why? Simply because of the level of, well, 
sometimes it is the level of residual sugar that might be in the wine um and that's the thing that has everybody always throwing their hands up and going oh i don't like sweet wine it's not sweet it just has more texture and it has more body um for example the new zealanders are thinking about putting the residual sugar levels on the back of their bottles um because simply they think it's actually a good thing to know rather than negative um but mainly it's because of the actual flavor profile of those grape varieties especially gewurz tramina which is so spicy gewurz obviously you know meaning spice and tramina being the village it came from so gewurz tramina the spicy one from the village of charmin so the moment you start putting that together with the spice in a dish it kind of echoes each other but the actual texture of the wine because it very often does have a little bit of residual sugar in it will actually carry through the spice because it won't let it burn as much it will round it out in your mouth so it comes as a balance from two different directions Mm. and roast chicken and a slightly oaked chardonnay oh yes (laughs) i I mean yeah exactly if you think about um doing sort of a a very classic roast lunch um and don't mess around with it too much just you know throw a lemon inside it put a few herbs lots of salt on it and some butter job done and then traditionally it always used to be obviously with um uh white burgundy white burgundy was the classic combination um whereas now obviously thinking about english wines you can look at litmus for example from um uh, John Warrenshack, who makes amazing, it's a blend actually of, of Chardonnay and back to other things. But also, if you look at the Chardonnay to be made in Kent as well, anything that's got that lovely structure and the oakiness isn't dominant, I think that's the key. We have benefited in the UK of learning what's gone on in the world in the last sort of 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And we have much better oak management. So we're never going to hopefully go back to the, the 80s of the Australian oak tea bag, um, which is like chewing on a, you know, basically stick of oh just awful dreadful oak and you couldn't taste any wine you know it was just really really bad what about christmas christmas oh christmas christmas is good because it depends what you're going to have and i think that's the big problem with christmas is that you've got so many different flavors on your plate generally speaking if we're going to go for a classic christmas lunch um so people go oh do i go white or do i go red um part of me would go yeah definitely (laughs) definitely it's an all-day thing exactly you know you can work you right the way through you you know you're having your sparkling for breakfast anyway in your gym jams with your smoked salmon and you know again oily fish with your smoked salmon yeah so that goes so well with sparklings um and then going through if you're having something sort of seafoody to begin with you could put it with either a nice crisp bacchus or maybe an albarino something like that moving on the main course, shall we say, if you're going to be doing turkey, turkey's one of those meats that it quite happily pairs with either. So if you wanted to stay with white, go across to something that's got a bit more body, like a Chardonnay. Or if you were going to go for the reds, classically in the past, I've gone for sort of lighter reds from the Loire, like Bourgogne and Chinon and things like that. But now I'm looking at the Pinot Noirs that are being produced in the UK, especially things like Lime Bay um, from right down on the Devon Dorset border, which just is bursting with cranberry red fruit. And I use that word advisedly because I think it would just go amazingly well on a Christmas lunch. So there's all kinds of different things you could put together. Yeah. But of course, you've got the, like, the big sort of punchy flavours of stuffing and whatever. So it's just sort of picking out a few flavours and thinking, yeah, that will really go with that. Yeah. Um, and obviously not whacking too much alcohol into the gravy too early because um, that just kills everything, possibly the chef as well. <laughs> let's start going around the country you've chosen four vineyards uh out of many in your book um first why did you choose nutbourne first nutbourne uh nutbourne because for me they're just down the road for me um i visit them lots and lots of times and i absolutely adore 
the the kind of ethos there, the family ethos. It's very much about hands on, getting into the vines. Um, Peter Gladwin, of course, obviously is a chef in his own right. He runs a great catering company in the in London that does things like the Lord Mayor's Banquet. He's got several cookbooks of his own. So every time we go there on a tour and take people there for a tasting and then have lunch in their lovely little lodge next to this ancient old um, windmill, it's just one of the most beautiful places to be. Mm. Um, and Peter's got like the pizza rubber going and he's blasting some mackerel or something so it gets nice and blackened and for me it just it was one of the first times in the UK I thought here is somebody who really understands putting food and wine together. Um, and especially when I sat and we did, a, even they do picnics there. So it's all about local Sussex things. Obviously, um, they have the Nutbourne Tomato uh, estate, which is next to them just down the road, mm. which are very famous, absolutely exquisitely just bursting with flavour. Um, but everything they put in those little um, picnics is a again is back to the sustainability of having bamboo knives and forks and things um, but also it just comes locally so whether it's like the the smoked trout patty that's made down the road everything is from there yeah. and I just sat there actually with Chloe my illustrator when I took her to see some vineyards when we were thinking about doing the book and we sat up on the top of the ridge looking down you'd have thought you were in New Zealand. It was just spectacularly oh. beautiful and vines as far as the eye could see. Same as Rathfinney, which is 10 minutes in a different direction from where I am. Um, yeah. Overlooking the uh, Cradle Valley down towards the sea. Um, absolutely stunning. Again, the local produce around here is sensational. You've got a great day out at some of these places, which are really destinations, aren't they? And that's a really important thing. We will have wine tourism in the South yeah definitely and i think um the drivers were fairly instrumental and very clear in mm. what they wanted to achieve you know Mark they drive yeah. only 10 years ago isn't it a little bit more i think but it's not long mm. um but they i mean they poached uh chris from the black rat in winchester who's an amazing chef mm. um and the one thing i like that they've done is this sort of looking at looking outside and what we can actually learn from other wine regions and bringing them back to the uk yeah so specifically south at, africa for them yes yeah, specifically south africa but also i would say australia is the same and new zealand mm. to a lesser extent but in south africa you can go to a winery just simply for lunch mm. you know because they have a lovely restaurant it's kind of almost incidental which is why i'm going to bolney tomorrow oh well there you go yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a, it's you, know, a you probably lovely... won't go and see any stainless steel or tanks or anything you'll be having lunch <laughs> well exactly but it's it's about choosing a really beautiful environment i mean it's just 20 minutes outside brighton but it's getting these great chefs in and having something delicious while you're looking out over the vineyards themselves so that you have context it's a, the absolute lesson in local seasonal i think it also it it reaches out it's that thing about getting people from the wider um society into wine and english wine and food because people will go there because it's lovely food mm. they won't be going there because they want to learn more about the wine but they'll look at it and go oh actually you know what i might buy a gift voucher for my other half to come back and we'll do a tour next yeah. time so it is that way of getting people involved in it in a very gentle easy way rather than sort of saying oh you have to come and learn because this is on your you know it, it's it's doing it nicely yeah exactly um simpsons in kent you've chosen as your second food moment yeah, Simpsons. Well, Simpsons, they are just, I love the fact that they've sort of done everything in the inverse. So they had um, an estate in the south of France first, make very good um, Provencal roses down there. And then afterwards, they decided to come back to Kent and plant in Kent. 
Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the, the rosé, the Rail Hill rosé. It comes in the most gorgeous bottle. I mean, absolutely stunning bottle. And they also have the glass stoppers on it. So they're all totally recyclable. And when I did an event here at our local deli, Madeline's Kitchen in Petersfield, we had lots of people over and blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was just a lovely, fun evening. Um, and I had that rosé. And though everyone was like, wow, this is beautiful – when I came to do the recycling, there were none of those bottles left. Everyone had taken all the empty bottles home because they all get repurposed as either olive oil bottles or whatever. So, again, taking this idea of sustainability yeah. to the next level. Yeah. And you've, t- you've used the tuna and fennel meatballs um, recipe to reference the fact that the inspiration does come from all over the world. It's a wonderful time, isn't it, to, to think globally and act locally? Yeah, absolutely. That sums it up entirely because we can never be a sort of standalone and and why would we want to sort of blocking out influences from around the world? That would be the most boring situation ever. So it wanted to be a celebration of English wines, but with stuff that also has inspired me across, you know, 25 years of wandering the wine world. Um, And so, yeah, there's this lovely in the archipelago of the Aeolian Islands, um, just off the north coast of Sicily. And there's just this lovely family run. it's nothing special it's just a family run restaurant um you know wine just keeps turning up the mother does the most amazing stuffed squid and you know they came out these days with these sort of tuna meatballs and i just remember sitting there and going oh this is heaven it's absolutely perfect and you, know, you can see the water just lapping up and most people that go to selena would go there purely for the beauty and just to relax and go to a nice hotel but they actually have fantastic um wine estates on the island as well mm. especially making moscato so actually taking that kind of thinking well i'd love to be able to do that looking out of the sea in the uk with in kent for example with a beautiful bottle of of simpsons but the inspiration came to it from a memory of italy yeah. so i think it comes from both sides yeah a little bit obsessed can i just say cindy marie uh, third pood moment is also uh, an italian summer's day you brought back the <laughs> you know let's go to italy vile ambriel west sussex yeah absolutely well when i lived in italy um and i lived in piemonte for five years so whenever you went to anyone's house for sort of the late afternoon I shan't even really call it tea time. One always took a little platter of um, these lovely mignons, the little patisseries. Um, and you can either have the beignet, which are like little shoe buns, and then pushed in or whatever. And one thing I really loved was the bacio di dama. Now, bacio di dama are, and by the way, apologies to all Italians ever before anyone says the recipe in my book is not for bacio di dama. They just gave me a bit of inspiration. So traditionally made, obviously, with hazelnuts and chocolate, because we're in Piemonte, and that's what we have in Piemonte. So when I was at home and I thought, oh, you know, I'd really like to redo this for for the summer. And uh, I had some of those lovely little mini amaretti biscuits and I had some uh, strawberry ice cream. So I started playing around with that. And the reason that took me back to Ambriel is because um, Wendy, who's one of the owners, along with her husband, Charles, at Ambriel, is possibly one of the most welcoming, generous people who works in the wine trade. She has an incredible hospitality. It's just through her veins. And whenever I've been there with clients, it has just felt totally all enveloping. And then being on their lovely garden on a summer's afternoon, drinking, especially drinking their demi-sec, which I think surprised a lot of people because if we'd have said to them, 
oh, it's demi sec before they tasted it, they'd have gone, oh, no, I don't do, don't do sweet wines. But actually, it's the most perfect reviving. You know, you've got the sun beating down. It's Sussex at its best. You know, you can hear the water tinkling in the water fountains. And just to sit down and do something like that, that sums up an English summer for me. It does, it does. Your fourth food moment takes us to Biddenden Vineyard in Kent, where I've been to for plenty of times. Again, the smell of childhood, the smell of summer, uh, apple orchards. Uh, Tell us about this one. Yeah, I mean, I just adore the whole story behind Biddenden um, and the fact that obviously because they had these wonderful orchard groves of apples and then the bottom fell out of the apple market. This was in the sort of like 60s, something like that. And uh, Tom Barnes, who's the current uh, winemaker, his mother was listening in the kitchen to, I think it was Woman's Hour, and there was a piece on English vineyards. And she said, oh, let's do this. And I can just imagine the scene, you know, everybody coming home after a hard day, picking um, apples and thinking, well, we're not going to sell them because there's no money in it. And then she says, let's go and plant a vineyard. And there would have been hollow laughter, I feel, for quite a bit of time. However, she has been thus vindicated. Um, and they make some amazing ones. They still obviously have their apples as well. But um, for me, for pairing, there could be nothing else other than putting it with a, an apple recipe because it has to reflect the whole of their history, I think. Um, one of the great things is going to be able to watch is how uh, dessert wines go in the UK because mm. there are very few at the moment. And some of them are a little bit light and not terribly to my taste. And is that because it's not hot enough yet? I think so. I think it's also we don't really have the culture of it. Um, and I think to make sweet wines more than anything else, you really as a winemaker have to have absolute passion for it, um, which Tom Barnes at Bindon has in spades. Um, so he has their Schoenberger, which is the one that I featured in the book, um, which is also incredibly good value when you look at the price of, you know, Sauternes and things like that. So I would definitely say... Go Going back to the Christmas idea, get yourself some Schoenberger from Brendan because it will just go with so many different things. Anyone's popping in at 10.30 in the morning for a little bit of a mince pie? Give them a glass of Schoenberger. They'll be there forever. Admittedly, they will still be there at the end of the day, but that's another problem. Um, so I think generally that what they do there he also has an amazing other um dessert wine which is comes with a slightly crazy price tag but he did it make a point because there are 122 i think it was grams of residual sugar so he priced it at 122 pounds just for fun just amazing wine but it's also you know you as again you've got to have fun in this world so definitely the bidden then um you know it's so beautiful there as well and it really does create that sort of quintessential english if you like Mentioning price, that that is the thing that people talk about most. It It is expensive. Presumably that means it's be- because we're not producing enough of it yet. Uh, or is it because, you know, are they deliberately targeting a certain kind of wine buyer? Mm, not really, I don't think. I think some of the, well, say, if you went for the very top crew of, say, Night Timber, which is a ridiculous amount of money, um, very nice, please don't take me the wrong way, but it is outside of most people's idea of what they would ever pay for a a meal out for two let alone a bottle of wine that is definitely aiming at that market and i think there's nothing wrong with that because that's actually the attempt how you get the attention of that market however for the majority of people who produce wine in the uk it is sadly just down to the fact that actually it is very expensive to produce in the uk because of the fixed costs that we have because we don't get any tax breaks from our, our beloved government because that we have the unreliability of our vintages so we can have you know 2018 three times the amount as was produced in the previous year for an economic point of view, that's a nightmare being able to plan. So it is fundamentally down to that. Um, we could do with a little bit of um, help from the government, just even just to get established, because 
as you said, we have a cost of living crisis. And whilst there are people out there who don't think too much about what they they would spend on wine, for most people, wine is still a luxury. So if they go out there and they see English wine that they'd like to buy, and it's too expensive compared to something cheap and cheerful from, say, Slovenia, where there's some amazing wines, but the production costs are a lot less, then we know which one they're going to go for. Um, I do think, though, there are great companies out there trying to do so much for it um and actually waitress gets a shout out for doing as much as they can for the range that they stock you have chapel down who do have the 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 economics of volume so they come in at, at decent prices for everybody and then you have lime bay down in um dorset devon who they worked i think was with aldi last year and so they did sort of under the own label range i think it was 6.99 or something two wines you know, nobody's going to complain about about paying that for a, for a bottle of wine and it's coming from England. So whilst people want to be patriotic, it does also come down to how much it is. So I think as long as it's honestly priced, for example, something like Stoppen's Pinot Blanc, which is £15 a bottle, I'm quite happy with that because it's an honest, honest price. Um, but we could do with a bit of help, you know, as a tax break. That would be good. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com to find out all my news, including supper clubs, and follow me on Instagram at foodjillysmith. And I'll see you next week.